limited to some grunts and laughter and a few words here and there. Hopefully, uh, dada before mama, you know, as the boys, as you start learning new words. But then as you mature, you start learning how to talk. Okay, so now those two boys sit at our dinner table and they speak Latin words to one another just because they're trying to seem like they're smarter than I am and I don't understand what they're saying. Right? So as you mature, right, you learn to talk. And unfortunately, many of us are still still very spiritually immature uh, because we have not yet learned how to talk to God and how to talk to others. Okay? A few years ago, Jackson and Jamin were talking like that, and now they're speaking in full sentences. But how are you all maturing? How are you all learning how to talk? Have you grown in your prayer life in these last few years? Have you grown in how you can communicate with others and most specifically unbelievers these last few years? Are you maturing in Christ? Are you learning to talk? Remember, one of the key reasons why Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians is so that they would mature in their faith. You remember what we talked about from Colossians 1, verse 28, which we'll have up on the screen, when he talks about him we proclaim, speaking of Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Okay, mature in Christ is what we've titled this series, this letter to the Colossians, because this is one of the main points of emphasis Paul has for the Colossian church, that they would grow up in Christ, that they would mature in the faith, and that they would see as they grow in their understanding of both the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, and that as they would grow in learning how to live out of the reality of their union with Christ, as they would grow in those things, they would mature and they would grow up in the faith. And therefore, a spiritually, spiritually mature people learn how to talk to God and learn how to talk to others in light of the truth that Jesus is supreme and that he is sufficient for our life and salvation. Okay, spiritually mature people learn how to talk to God and learn how to talk to others in light of the truth that Jesus is supreme and sufficient for our life and salvation. And many of you, many of us are not as spiritually mature as we maybe thought we were initially before starting this book to the Colossians, this letter to the Colossians. And maybe the last couple of weeks, God has been revealing just some of your spiritual immaturity, whether it be as we've talked about the roles of wives and husbands. Maybe some of you have felt like, man, I'm a really kind of immature wife. I'm an immature husband. I'm an immature father. I have a spiritual immaturity about how I view my work. I'm, I'm worshiping my work and not working, not seeing my work as worship to God. And so maybe God's been uncovering some spiritual immaturity that still exists in you. Um, but now this morning, we're going to uncover something else. And we're going to see how spiritually mature people communicate with the Lord, and how spiritually mature people communicate with others. And so let's, let's pray, and we'll, we'll jump into this passage. <clears throat> Father God, we do thank you for today. 
And Lord, we thank you for a gathering like this where we can come to find rest and refreshment from all that is happening around us. Lord, we do ask that you would bring about peace in our land, that you would bring about healing, um, that you would, Lord, bring about revival amongst your people. And Lord, we know that whatever kind of work you are doing, Lord, we know that you have a work for us today that you desire to do in our hearts and in the midst of this church family. And so, Father, we, we ask that you would speak. Father, please speak. Your sons and daughters are listening. I do ask for myself, Lord, that you would, you would help me proclaim your truth in a clear way. Help me not muddy the water. Spirit, I ask that you would give light, that you would illuminate this passage to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, look with me now at Colossians 4, starting in verse 2. He writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. All right, so let's stop here and let's first uh, examine these instructions he gives on how to talk with God. Okay, he's given us some instructions on prayer. Now, certainly this isn't a comprehensive teaching on prayer, uh, but he does give us four ways, all right, four points here where we can see our prayer lives mature, that we can see uh, us, us develop our prayer life. And number one, he says to continue steadfastly in prayer. Essentially to be devoted to prayer, to persevere in prayer. Okay, prayer is not something that we just do once when we come to faith in Christ and then we kind of move on from it. No, a spiritually mature person is committed and devoted and determined to pray. To pray. Listen, if we really believe that Jesus is supreme, meaning that he is better than anything and anyone else in this universe, like if we really believe that he is sufficient, that he is enough for us, for our life and salvation, if we really believe that, then we must be devoted to talking with him. But sometimes we don't feel like it, right? I mean, I'll be honest. I feel like this is, I can be open here, right? Sometimes I don't feel like praying. And Paul knows that. And, and that's why he gives us some instruction here, okay? There would be no need of an, of an instruction like this if prayer was easy. Right? No, no one has to encourage you to continue steadfastly in eating dessert. Right? That's not, a, that's not a needed instruction. Right? That just happens. And so Paul, by giving us this instruction, he's acknowledging, like, this is, this is hard. This, this is not always just easy. We're not always just walking around, just, oh, just desiring to pray and, and talk with the Lord. And so he knows that at times we will not feel like it. And there will be times, therefore, that we must continue steadfastly in it, that we must devote ourselves to it, that we must be determined to regularly and intentionally communicate with the Lord. 
Okay, think about this, all right? So I am devoted to Brit, right? She is my wife, and a part of being devoted to her means that I am committed to communicating with her. Now, oftentimes, this happens spontaneously, right? Just as we're doing life together, as we're living together, we are are spontaneously communicating, and it's happening throughout the day, whether it be through a text message or a phone call or through around a, a meal or spending time together, and all that is really good. But then we also have times where we have to be really intentional to talk to one another. Right? We have times where we will have a date night or uh, uh, before this summer we've kind of gotten out of a rhythm, but we had like Monday nights we knew that that was going to be an intentional set aside time with no distractions where we were going to talk with one another, share how our hearts were doing, pray with one another. Like we had to have that time. And in the same way, listen, prayer should be all throughout the day. It should. Like, that's a beautiful opportunity we have to talk with the Lord all throughout the day as life happens, as we're at work, as we're at school, as we're living life. Like, that is a great invitation we have to constantly be communicating with the Lord. But in order to continue steadfastly in prayer, in order to be devoted to it, in order to be determined to continue in it, we also need to have a set-aside time that we are intentionally crying out to the Lord that is an uninterrupted, undistracted time that is carved out in our schedule where we can be devoted to prayer. All right, We must have that if we are to continue this communicating with the Lord as He desires us to communicate. And so Paul's instruction here to the church and to us, he says, number one, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. He then, number two, he says, to be watchful in it. This means to be awake and to be alert. Okay, the opposite of this happened in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus had Peter, James, and John. He told them to pray, and he came back and he found them asleep. Now, this isn't to say that you can't pray while you're falling asleep, all right? I think that's a, that's a fine uh, thing to do as you're laying in bed, falling asleep, talking to the Lord. I think that's great, but that can't be the only time that you're praying. And really what he's getting at here, though, is not that sometimes we fall asleep while we pray, but to be watchful and to be alert and awake in our prayers is a, is a, is a command to battle our spiritual apathy. Most of our prayer lives are apathetic. And Paul is saying, wake up, be alert in your prayers. Like see what is happening around you, the temptations and the dangers that are coming your way. Be on guard and go to the Lord in prayer, right? Pray for your brothers and sisters as you are watching what is happening around them and the dangers and the temptations they might be facing and the things that are coming up in their lives that they'll need prayer for. Like, be alert, be watchful in your prayer lives. And then he gives us some even further instruction in prayer and how to be watchful in it. And he says, and he says that we should be watchful in our prayers with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving. Our prayers should be full of gratitude and thanksgiving to God. Church, a lot of problems that we deal with, 
especially in our spiritual immaturity, whether it be anxiety or greed or lust or selfishness, a lot of those things will get absolutely suffocated when our hearts and our prayers are full of gratitude. Like when our hearts and prayers are full of gratitude, it doesn't leave enough airspace for all those other things that we worry about and that we, we uh, are tempted to think about. And Paul's saying, if you want to be alert, all right, if you want to be watchful, if you don't want to be uh, apathetic in your prayer life and in your spiritual life, he says you have to be offering thanks to God. You have to be devoted and determined to continually and steadfastly lift up thanksgiving to God. And I want you to see a really cool illustration of this uh, that the Bible gives. And it's back in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. So if you guys have a Bible, go ahead and flip back to 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 20. 2 Chronicles, it's right after 1 and 2 Samuel, right after 1 and 2 Kings. And it's right before Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So turn back to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And what this will do is I think this will give us a good illustration on how thanksgiving and gratitude can lead the charge in our prayers regardless of the circumstances that surround us. Okay, uh, Second Chronicles 20, this is taking place in the time that Jehoshaphat, which is a, a really fun name to say, uh, he is king of Judah, and uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites and all the other ites are starting to come against Judah, and Judah is outnumbered. Jehoshaphat is fearful, and therefore he orders the nation to fast and to seek after the Lord. And then let's pick it up in Second Chronicles 20, verse 6. And he says, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Skip ahead to verse 11. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Okay, that is maybe a great verse you need to write down. Keep it in your pocket. It even rhymes, okay? We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you, okay? And then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon one of the men and skip down to verse 15. And he says, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. All right, now skip down to verse 20 and just watch this military strategy, okay? For those of you that have been in the military, I want you to let me know if this was ever a, a strategy that, that uh, was in the playbook of, of the army or, or military, okay? Verse 20, And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were, uh, who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And what we see then follows is that as they're singing, give thanks to the Lord, his steadfast love endures forever. The Lord brings about an ambush and actually sets it up to where all these enemies end up destroying themselves. So what do we see in this military plan? Okay, Uh, what we see is that they decide to send the choir first. And they're singing, give thanks to the Lord. For his steadfast love endures forever. I mean, I just would have loved to have been in that meeting room. And I, and I imagine like the choir director sort of sitting in the front and all the military people up front, uh, you know, around. And, and someone saying, you know who I think needs to lead this one? Like, let's get, let's get the choir boys out there, right? Like, let's, let's put them on the front. Forget the, forget the Green Berets and all the special forces. Like, we need the glee club out front, right? Leading the charge, singing, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. And this is what they sing. Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. Thanksgiving and gratitude have to be on the front line of our prayer lives, regardless of the circumstances that surround us. Church, when life comes at us in a way that overwhelms us and we don't know what to do, we have to devote ourselves to setting our eyes upon the Lord. We have to devote ourselves to praying and offering up prayers of thanksgiving. God's people will endure. Our enemies might destroy one another, as they often do, but God's people will endure. And so when the enemy surrounds us, we send the choir, which is you, and we sing and we offer up thanksgiving to God. Flip, flip back to Colossians. Flip back to Colossians chapter 4. And as you're turning back there, listen, if you are struggling in being devoted to prayer, you're not sure where to start, you're you're struggling with being alert in prayer and being watchful in prayer and offering up thanksgiving, uh, what I would do is I would encourage you to to meet with a brother or sister uh, and talk about what they do to pray. Talk about this in your city group. Hey, what does your prayer time look like? But what, what I would simply encourage you is to always, when you don't have the words to say and you don't know what to say to the Lord, go to God's word and let what God has spoken start to spark your own prayer life. All right? Like we might not always have the words, but we do have God's word. Okay? And the reason then that we can speak at all is because God has already spoken. And so I would go simply to maybe Matthew 6 and go to the Lord's Prayer and let that start to guide your own prayer time. Or I would go to the book of Psalms and I would start to read one of the Psalms and start to pray through that and let that kind of be a jump start to your own prayer life. I've heard it said, and this often guides my time, when I don't know what to pray, I go to the Psalms. When I don't know how to live, I go to the Proverbs. All right, you've got some prayers and you've got some wisdom in the middle of your Bible. 
Spontaneous prayers to God throughout the day are great, but we also need to be devoted to prayer in a way that we have some carved out, intentional, undistracted, uninterrupted time of prayer as well. But then look at how else Paul encourages them to pray, okay? So he's he's encouraged them to continue steadfastly, to be devoted. He then tells them to be watchful, to be alert and awake in their prayers. He tells them to offer up prayers of thanksgiving. And now look at verse 3, Colossians 4, verse 3. And he says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Okay, Paul, who we are reminded right now, is in prison, is not primarily praying that the difficult circumstance he is in would end. But instead, he's praying for more opportunities to share with others about Jesus. He's praying for open doors regardless of the circumstances. And maybe that open door is going to be for him to get out of prison. But if it's not, he's trusting that God, hey, whether I'm in prison or free, I'm praying that the gospel would go forth. Because listen, if Jesus is really supreme and if Jesus is really sufficient, we shouldn't primarily be so concerned about our difficult circumstances, but instead that in whatever circumstances we are in, that God would open doors for the gospel to go forth. And you better believe, church, that that is happening right now. There are some difficult circumstances, but God in the midst of this is opening doors for the gospel to go forth. Now listen, it's not wrong for us to pray that that the virus would end. It's not wrong for us to pray for peace or at least some civility amongst political parties. It's not wrong for us to pray that our economy would recover and that some of the craziness would calm down. Like, please, please pray for those things. We should pray for those things. But Paul, he's about to teach us to make best use of the time. And I have to think he's trying to make best use of his time. And therefore, he's saying, hey, If I can only give a few instructions on prayer, I'm going to instruct you to pray for open doors for the gospel to go forth. Regardless of the difficult circumstances, regardless of whether he's in prison or free, he's asking the church to pray for him that he might proclaim Christ and that he might proclaim Christ in a clear and powerful way. And therefore, church, this is, this is what we should be praying for, right? We, we can ask the Lord for some peace and some calm, but, but if Christ is supreme and Christ is sufficient, then we also have to pray, God, like allow whatever circumstances need to be allowed in order for us to know you more and to, and to make you known. And that's a scary prayer. That's a scary prayer. That whether in prison or in free or free, I want Christ to be proclaimed. And then as another point of application, church, let me also encourage you to specifically be praying for me and for Kevin and for Dad and for any that would step into this pulpit to preach. Okay, Paul right here is asking the Colossians to pray for him that he might make the glory of Christ clear and understandable and and proclaim it in a powerful way. And so I'm going to ask the same of you. 
If Paul needs prayer, you know I need even more, okay? Would you pray for us? Would you pray for those that are proclaiming the gospel to you? And would you pray for us who are proclaiming the gospel to our city that we would be able to do so in a clear way, that we would make the glory of Christ clear and put it on display for our church and for our city? Charles Spurgeon, who was known as the Prince of Preachers, he was often asked what his secret sauce to preaching was. Like what, what really gave him, you know, kind of, like why was his preaching so powerful? And he always answered that his secret sauce was his people prayed for him. His people prayed for him. And church, I know many of you do, do pray for me, and I, I, I'm so grateful for that. And I'd ask that you would continue to to pray for me. But I'd ask those of you that maybe aren't regularly praying for me and for your pastors that you would see this as an opportunity to commit yourself to that. That you would devote yourself to praying for those who are proclaiming God's truth to you. This could be one of the biggest gifts, really, that you could give to me. And really, I believe one of the biggest gifts and ways that you could bless the city is that you, could, you would pray that God would continue to work through and raise up more proclaimers of the gospel in the city of Franklin. But listen, I'm not the only proclaimer in here. And I'm not the only herald of this good news in here. You are as well. Okay? And therefore, in light of the truth that Jesus is supreme, and in light of the truth that Jesus is sufficient, you must learn not only how to talk to God in prayer, but you must learn how to talk to others. Okay, so look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Colossians 4, verse 5. He's starting to shift it now towards learning how to talk to God to now learning how to talk to others. And he says in Colossians 4, verse 5, he says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Well, first of all, what is wisdom? All right, what is wisdom? Biblical wisdom is having a skill for living. All right, biblical wisdom is having a skill for living. It's knowing how to take knowledge, and it's knowing how to take that knowledge and apply it to a specific uh, context or a certain situation, right? Uh, Biblical wisdom, I've heard it described as knowing how to live for God's glory, especially in the gray areas of life, where there's not like a clear right and wrong, black or white thing. There's a lot of gray areas. Biblical wisdom knows how to live for the glory of God, even in those times. And listen, some of us are just more skilled at living than others, okay? Uh, for, for example, all right, uh, uh, my family, you know, we would often do uh, taco night. I don't know about you guys. If you guys have a taco night at your house, maybe it's Taco Tuesday if you're trying to stay consistent with the rest of the world. Uh, but we would occasionally have taco night. And we love taco night. I love nachos. I'm a nacho guy. Uh, someone described me as a nacho guy. Maybe that was Seth. He's like, oh, yeah, you're a nacho guy. I'm like, how did that spread? Like, how did I get that reputation? 
But yeah, we like taco night, okay? And uh, taco night was always great. And we thought it was, you know, we thought we were doing it the right way and uh, enjoying it. And we, we would, you know, worship God through our, our love of tacos. Um, and then, and then we had taco night with the goods, Okay, we had taco night with the goods and what Alyssa did uh, for the tacos was she would take the tortillas and she would fry the tortillas first and then make tacos with fried tortillas. Now, I mean, if you're trying to think about like having skill for living. Okay, that, that is wisdom right there. That is wisdom. That is taking a normal taco and making it better, all right? That's just like you've figured it out. You have figured out this taco night thing, right? And so that's, that's, that's wisdom. And you, you know some people like this, right? It seems like they just got life figured out, right? There are certain maybe aspects that you're just like, wow, you guys really just, you've, you've unlocked something here. You've gotten a skill for living. And some of us, we have more of a skill for living than others, okay? Uh, some of us maybe notice this in other people, maybe their parenting or their marriage or the way they do their work, the way they conduct their business. You can see people who are, are using some biblical wisdom. They're, they're taking knowledge, knowing how to glorify God in a certain context. And listen, me saying that some of us are more wise than others, that's not to put anyone down because, listen, we are, we are encouraged to pursue wisdom. We can always grow in wisdom. We're, we're encouraged to ask God for wisdom. And so this is something that we should see other wise people and we should be going and trying to learn from them and learn how God has helped them grow in certain ways. And so he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Or you could essentially say, know how to live for the glory of God in relationships with outsiders. Well, who are outsiders? And it's not people that are just gathering outside right now. Uh, <laughs> outsiders are unbelievers here. Those who are not followers of Jesus. Well, how do we live for the glory of God in our relationships with those that don't know Jesus? Paul says, make the best use of the time. Other translations say redeeming the time. He's getting at this idea of buying back the time. Buying the time, like, like seeing the value in the time and, and purchasing it and buying it. Okay, a real estate investor who sees a string of houses that, that he knows have value but are way underpriced, what does he do? He buys them up. He sees the value in them, and he buys them up. Christians should see that the time that they have with unbelievers is so valuable and precious that they should make the best use of the time. They should buy it up. They should redeem that time. Okay, we're going to have all eternity with one another, all right? And already some of us are kind of getting on one another's nerves, right? We got like, we've got all eternity together, right? But we only have so much time with our neighbors, and with our coworkers and our classmates and our teammates. And that time should not be wasted or squandered, but instead redeemed. And therefore, we must have a sense of urgency about the time that we have. For example, let's say I gave you guys $1,440 today. That would be pretty generous, right? Everyone check under your seat. 
No, no one did. Okay. Yeah. You got, you call my bluff. All right. All right. Yeah. That's not happening. Okay. That's not happening. But let's say I gave this deal where I gave you $1,440 a day and you had to spend it by the end of the day. And whatever you didn't spend, uh, we lit on fire and just kind of burned up. Now, some of you, that is actually how you deal with your finances, all right? You feel like you have to spend, and if that's you, you need to meet with our finance team. They want to disciple and love you. Uh, Kevin, Seth, Tim, like they're ready to shepherd you guys in that way, all right? So that's not how we should deal with our finances, but I'm just trying to set a scene, all right? What if I gave you $1,440, said you had to spend it, and anything you didn't spend today, it was burned up. It was gone forever, I would imagine that as the day went on, you would start to feel a little sense of urgency about needing to spend it. You would start be looking for some ways to really be uh, intentional and purposeful with the money that you had left for that day. How would you spend it? And church, the truth is that God gives us something much more valuable than $1,440 each day. Right? He gives us 1,440 minutes each day. And we cannot save any of the minutes for tomorrow. We must spend those minutes for the glory of God or we will waste them and squander them. And there's probably some secondary kind of time management productivity applications you could pull from this passage, all right? And maybe some of you should do that. I mean, there's some good books out there right now about being productive, not being a waster of time, things like that. But listen, that's not, Paul, that's not mainly what Paul's getting at here. He's mainly getting at redeeming our time with unbelievers, all right, that's what he's saying. This time is precious. We need to redeem it. We need to buy it back. Our time left with unbelievers is not that long, and we're one minute less. We're 40 minutes less after you hear this sermon than when I started. And so I want to give you guys some really practical advice. And by the way, I'm, I'm probably still going to go over 40 minutes, so that, don't, don't box me into that 40 minute. I don't want to be a liar there. But, uh, but therefore, I want to give some practical advice about how we can make the best use of our time and walk in wisdom toward unbelievers. All right, so this is, this is maybe some really practical advice. Number one, I would say substitute out the word outsiders in this verse and put someone's name in there. Like if you really want to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, if you really want to make the best use of the time, then take this verse out of the theoretical and put it into your real life. Like, put some flesh on it, all right? And so right now, whether you want to rewrite this verse on a piece of paper, or I give you permission to write in your Bible, all right, um, above the word outsiders or next to the word outsiders, I want you right now to think about and write down the name of the first unbeliever that comes to your, to your mind. Someone that you maybe don't know, uh, someone that you don't think knows Jesus. Now read this verse again, maybe just silently in your own head. Walk in wisdom toward John or Jill or Matt or Susie 
making the best use of the time, letting your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. We have to take, if we're serious about obeying God's word, we have to take these passages out of the theoretical and put some flesh on them and really understand who we are talking about here. It's the same with, with kind of loving your neighbor as yourself, right? When your neighbor is everyone, your neighbor is no one, okay? But actually, you guys have neighbors, and they do have names. And when we put names to those verses, it becomes a very real, it gives us a very practical kind of vision forward for how we are to obey this, this verse, how we are to obey this command from God when we read it in such a way that we see actually someone's name in this. Well, another way to make best use of the time with maybe those people that you are thinking about is to ask them good questions. Ask good questions. This would be a a way to grow in your maturity in lots of areas in life, a way to grow in wisdom in lots of areas of life. It is to learn the art of asking good questions. Jesus was great at asking people's questions or asking people questions. A night of meaningless small talk conversation can become deep and fruitful conversation when someone in the group is being intentional to ask good questions. When I work at the hospital and when I'm a patient comes in and I'm trying to diagnose or try to come up with a treatment plan, I always try to ask them as many questions as I possibly can as time would allow in that situation, right? I just, I rapid fire, tons of questions coming at them. Sometimes I even uh, uh, play like a little game in my head. Like I try to ask 21 questions before I offer any advice or any plan for them. It kind of keeps the day interesting and, and fun, all right? So maybe you can try that as well, trying to ask someone 21 questions about whatever they are dealing with. Because you see, oftentimes when we are with people, we are projecting how we feel or think onto them and instead wasting the time by making assumptions about how they are thinking and feeling about something. And we actually haven't even taken the time to really ask them, in fact, if that is how they think or feel. Right? Every, everyone here, you've probably had a medical provider at some point that asked you like one question or no questions and then came in with a solution for you. Even more so, people have had a Christian try to ram an answer down their throat before they've actually heard their problems. And you know in those situations that the, perp- the person doesn't really care about your problems as much as they care about wanting to offer you their solutions. And so if you want to redeem the time with unbelievers, ask them good questions and really listen to their answers. Ask them good questions. The third way I'll share with you this morning to practically make best use of the time is to share your own story. After you've asked them plenty of questions or in the midst of asking them questions, be open with them about your story. And hopefully your story is just soaked with the gospel and how God saved you and how Jesus has transformed your life and has worked through you. You don't always have to feel the pressure to to, to talk and have those deep conversations. Like you have to have the answer to all their questions. All you really need to start out doing is by just sharing your story. 
And most people are are very untrusting and they're closed off because they haven't experienced the freedom and grace that you have experienced in Christ. So therefore, since you've experienced that freedom and grace in Jesus, you are now free to be vulnerable and to share your story with them and watch the time be redeemed. But listen, then Paul goes on to clarify what our speech with unbelievers should be like. Because some of us maybe are hearing this and maybe we are getting pretty psyched about redeeming the time, uh, but how should our communication be postured? Like what should the nature of our talk be? Should we be yelling at people to repent? Should we be sneaking up on them with our study Bibles ready to like hit them in the head? Should we lead with law and judgment and harshness? Look at Colossians 4 verse 6. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I don't necessarily know all the specific answers to all the specific questions that you might be asked, but I know what your talk is supposed to be like, and it's supposed to always be gracious seasoned with salt. All right, in Paul's time, salt was a really valuable thing, okay? In fact, it was often used to barter and to trade with uh, for, for the Latin students in here, okay? I know we have a handful of kids, right, studying Latin, okay? Our English word salary comes from the Latin word for salt, which is salarius, okay? You guys got that? You guys got that? Okay, we're, we're, sort of, we're trying to make best use of the time and overlap our homeschool and preaching, okay? So just, just bear with us, all right? All right, uh, geography will be next. But salt was a valuable commodity. I know right now, like to us, salt's like, you know, whatever. There's, there's salt everywhere. But before the time of refrigeration, salt was valuable. It was used to preserve food. It kept things from rotting. It kept death or corruption from having its way with with people's food. Salt was also used as seasoning. Salt just makes things better, right? And I used to make fun of uh, Dad about this. And Dad, you're watching from home. Dad's feeling a little under the weather. Um, So please be praying for for Mom and Dad. Um, But I used to make fun of him because anytime mom would put a plate in front of him, like before he tasted it all, and you guys in your, in your city groups or when you have meals with them, just observe this before he tastes anything, he's just going to add salt to it. Like however salty this is, it just, it needs a little more, right? And I used to give him a hard time about that. But then I realized like, no, that's wisdom, man. Like a little bit more salt will always make it better, (laughs) right? That's, that's a skill for living, right? Whatever amount of salt, just a little bit more will make it better. And so salt does, it seasons things, right? It brings out the flavors. It makes things a little bit more interesting. Your words and your speech should always be gracious, and they should be life-giving words, and they should make the conversation better. They should add value. They should make it more interesting. It should be life-giving. Don't waste your words with gossip or slander or anger or bitterness. 
The words of someone who is in Christ. The words of someone who really believes that Jesus is supreme and that Jesus is sufficient. Their words should be life-giving. You see, we, we get really excited about the truth, as we should, like we want to proclaim truth. But part of allowing our speech to be seasoned with salt is speaking the truth, preserving the truth, but truth also has to be spoken with grace and with love. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.15, he says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Any immature Christian can speak the truth. A mature believer knows how to speak the truth in love and with gracious talk. One of my professors in college, he used to say that your truth will never be heard until your grace and your love are felt. Church, if we are to grow up in Christ, if we are to mature in Christ, we must learn how to speak the truth in love. We must learn how to be gracious in our speech, how to give people undeserved favor in our speech, and to have speech that is salty, that preserves life, that adds value to the conversation. What you say, even on social media, should be gracious and seasoned with salt. And if it's not, you are living in disobedience to God. Here's another thing salt does. It makes people thirsty. Right? We can't make people drink from the fountain of life, which is Christ, but our speech can make them thirsty for him. I want people to walk away from a conversation with me thirsting for more of Christ. I'm not looking to win an argument. I'm not looking even to prove a point or to prove that someone is wrong and I am right. But what I do want is for them to walk away thirsting for more of that river of life that's flowing out of me. And so how does your communication with God and how does your communication with unbelievers look right now, church? Like, let's do a little self-evaluation. Ask the Spirit to kind of search your heart right now and to say, hey, how am I doing? How have I been learning how to talk with God and with others? Does it look like an infant? Does it look how an infant communicates? Like, listen, that video that we watched... That's really cute when you're one or two. It's really sad and disheartening when you're 20 or 30 years old and you're talking like that. Right? Some of you have been believers for 20 or 30 years and your communication skills are still at an infant level. But here's good news. Here's the good news for us who have lacked the words to speak and maybe even lacked the desire and the right way to speak them. Here's the good news. I'll have it up on the screen. John 1, verse 14. It says, And the Word, speaking of Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Take church, uh, sorry, take heart church. 
We might still be learning to speak, but our great God has spoken to us through the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And it is Jesus who prayed the prayers that we didn't know how to pray. He taught us to to pray to God as our father and no longer as our judge. It is Jesus who taught us, right, that, that, that when we didn't know how to communicate, that, 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 that our lives should just be overflowing with communicating between God and us. It is this Jesus who did not speak up for himself or defend himself when falsely accused, but instead endured an unjust trial and unjust circumstance and willingly went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He went to the cross and paid for all of our words of disobedience, for all of our words that have cut people down, for all of our prideful, arrogant, harsh, and bitter words. He went to the cross and paid the penalty for all of our our ungracious talk and he experienced separation from the father so that the curtain of the temple might be ripped in two so that we might approach God's presence now with confidence so that we might now devote ourselves to prayer and be alert and watchful with thanksgiving in it so that we might lift up prayers for open doors for the gospel to be proclaimed and so we would have a sense of urgency in our prayer life, and in our time with unbelievers. Church, as Jesus has redeemed us, so may we redeem the time and bring life and truth to our speech. May we, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, make people thirsty for Jesus. So let us learn, let us learn how to talk, church for our God has spoken to us. Let's pray.